Welcome to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Scherenberg, a longtime journalist and media executive, most recently the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. If social media platforms don't cause political polarization, they do at least give oxygen to smoldering divisions that can erupt in tragedies like the Myanmar genocide, Brexit, and January 6th. But why is social media so effective at unleashing the worst in us, and how do we break its hold? Today's guest, Christopher Bale, pursues those questions as the director of Duke University's Polarization Lab. He's also the author of Breaking the Social Media Prism, named one of the top five nonfiction books of 2021. Chris and I discuss the role of status-seeking in social media, the personality types most susceptible to radicalization, and an intriguing experimental platform that his team designed to encourage civil discourse. And now, here's Christopher Bale. Chris, welcome to In Reality. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, a, a lot of the research institutions that are featured on this podcast fall into the camp of what we in journalism would call admiring the problem. So just enumerating the many ways that social media is a scourge upon democracy and measuring how far along we are on the fast track to civil war. But my read of your book and of the mission of the Polarization Lab at Duke is way more optimistic and pragmatic, kind of understanding the, the feedback loop between technology and polarization and kind of more importantly, finding ways to unwind the divides in our country. But let me ask you to describe the work you do at the lab and, and the goals of the lab. Yeah, we're optimists, you know, in, in a field that, that doesn't have many right now. And let me tell you why we're optimistic. And I think this is an experience many of us have had. You know, the gap between social media and real life is just stunningly broad in, in so many ways, right? You, you know, it's sort of the highlight reel, you know, we're all familiar with that, you know, where people tend to only share positive information about their lives. But then the other extreme, it's sort of the angriest, noisiest, most inflammatory people um, online. About 6% of Twitter users, for example, generate about 76% of posts about politics. Hmm. And those 6% of people are either extremely conservative or extremely liberal. And so the problem is, you know, we all get the sense, we all easily, all too easily confuse social media with reality. And that makes us all feel a lot more polarized than we really are. One of the ways that uh, some researchers have prescribed the way to counteract polarization. Uh, and this is sort of how your book begins by debunking this idea is to seed people's newsfeed uh, or some other way, expose them to points of view from the other side. There's a lot of sort of intuitive force behind that. You think about carrying public service announcements on, on the airwaves or in publications. And that was sort of a, a regulatory way to get good messages out into the news bloodstream. But your research shows that that doesn't work. And in fact, it might be counterproductive. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this is sort of counterintuitive. And I agree. Our, our research surprised me, too. What we did in 2017 was to recruit a really large group of Republicans and Democrats who use Twitter. And then we offered half of them money to follow a bot that they were told would retweet messages from a random sample of accounts. 
what they later learned was that the accounts were actually retweeting messages from the other political party, from journalists, elected officials, advocacy groups. And the idea was to sort of try to take people out of, out of their echo chamber for a little bit. And so many people, you know, most recently, probably Elon Musk, but before him, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, a long line of tech luminaries have sort of been arguing that the problem with the internet is that it's not, you know, it's not free enough, that ideas can't compete, that if uh, social media companies have too strong a hand, that we interrupt the competition of ideas, which is essential to a democracy. And, you know, yeah, it's a great idea. It's a noble idea, but it's so out of step with what happens on social media. You know, when we paid these people um, to, to step outside their echo chamber compared and compared them to a group of people who did not step outside their echo chamber, um, what we discovered is they did not, you know, gradually become a little more moderate. You didn't see, you know, Republicans maybe revisiting their 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 attitudes about assault weapons, or you didn't see, uh, you know, Democrats relaxing some of their attitudes about, you know, issues they care about. Instead, what we saw is really nobody became more moderate, and most people became a little bit more uh, partisan, became a little more committed to their previous beliefs. So yeah, it was a stunning result. Um, we spent a long time trying to, to explain it, but it doesn't seem that social media in its current format creates the competition of ideas where stepping outside your echo chamber would be profitable for all of us. Well, what are the sort of dead ends that you can go down as you, as you try to make a difference in this field is to focus a lot on disinformation. So it's just a parallel idea to what you were describing as the kind of intuition you have about the marketplace of ideas, that if all ideas are allowed to compete equally, that truth will drive out falsehood, uh, and that the shared reality will drive out sort of alternate realities. And yet we know that's, that's not true. Uh, and that the operative factor often seems to be tribalism, that our, the way our Paleolithic brains are wired is so powerful that we are drawn to be members of groups and to support that group identity, even in the face of contrary evidence. And that is a, it's a point that's been made by Ezra Klein, uh, among others, and it helps explain why people are so resistant to argumentation from the other side. Your vision of our identities strikes me as more nuanced than simply that we sort ourselves and then become the red team and the blue team. You describe the process as kind of a continuous testing of identities and then reacting to the feedback we get. This happens in real life and in online. Um, would you describe that sort of looking glass identity? I mean, this is why I love the name of your podcast in reality, right? It's all about the gap between perception and reality. And that's never more true than when we're talking about identities. You know, I think Ezra Klein is right that our political identities have an extremely powerful effect on our behavior and, you know, long line of political scientists, sociologists, and all other sorts of folks have made that argument. What I think people are sort of less sensitive to is that a lot of people, a whole lot of people, maybe even most people really don't like politics very much, don't care about politics very much. And what really makes us human is not just the sort of us, them sort of, you know, where we're not all just sort of, you know, red team, blue team, we're also all out to, 
to find status, get a sense of self-worth. You know, we crave, you know, I think I believe what makes us human is our desire, you know, for other people to like us, you know. And so I think we are hardwired to do that. And, you know, this concept of the looking glass self that you mentioned is sort of like we are, we are all from a very young age sort of trained to sort of think about ourselves through the eyes of others, you know. So you can sort of think about identity as a series of experiments that we run every day. You know, I wake up, I try on, you know, now I'm being, you know, an easygoing professor. The next day I'm being, you know, someone totally different. And each time I try on a new identity, I can sort of see how others react. You know, I can sort of say, oh, well, you know, you know, that joke really landed, that one didn't, you know, and so on and so forth. And over time, I tend to cultivate those identities that I think make other people like me. Now, the really important thing is humans are really actually pretty bad at this. You know, a lot of the, the sort of tragedy of, of, of the human condition is that we misread the perceptions of others. And that's especially likely when we are so far removed from each other in virtual spaces like social, social media. So, you know, our brains are sort of trained to think of things like like buttons and follower accounts as some kind of meaningful, uh, you know, measure of how we're doing. You know, you, you look to young, younger people, especially you see this, right? Um, and we can put people in fMRI machines and see regions of the brain light up when we get likes on a simulated Instagram site. So we know it's like it's actually, you know, deep down in our guts. The problem is that, you know, these signals that social media gives us are a fundamental distortion of, of what's going on. You know, if you so if you want to, you know, think about the easiest way to get a lot of likes on on Twitter, well, right now it's making fun of Elon Musk, but before that it was making fun of the other side, right? The other, um, you know, the other political party. And, you know, people see the likes add up and they think, well, this is, you know, more of this, please, right? And then, you know, so then they tend to cultivate these, these um, identities, our research shows. And when I say our research, we spent many, many hours talking to social media users, interviewing them, studying their behavior. What we find is that you know, social media is kind of enabling a kind of micro celebrity around politics where people tend to adopt increasingly extreme positions simply because there's that feedback loop that you mentioned um, where we're getting, you know, the, the, the validation from others that we all so badly crave, especially people who are really socially isolated or, or marginalized. Uh, that raises a really interesting point that your research has shown you, which is that an awful lot of the people who are extremists online are people who actually have very low status or perceive themselves as having very low status in the real world. And that the, the drug of likes and social validation is kind of irresistible to them online. So how are, how are the extremists kind of as personality types different from moderates in their behavior in, um, in their online and offline selves. Yeah, let me let me tell you a story about one of the the people we met that I think nicely exemplifies this this process. You know, we, uh, we you know we asked everybody you know who we spoke with in, in a follow up study to the one I mentioned earlier, where people sort of once again participate in an experiment, but this time we talked to them for hours instead of sending them an online survey. And you know, we really met people where they're at. We'd say, you know, like, well, tell us tell us what you did on social media the last time you logged on, and met this fellow who I'll call Ray because, you know, we, we were protecting his identity, but he tells us, oh yeah, you know, social media, I try to avoid politics, you know, it's, it's, it's all negative, you know, it's something you hear a lot of people say. Mm -hmm. 
I had gone to talk to him a little longer and he's a super just swell guy, you know, very, very polite, even civil goes out of his way to say, he, you know, he has no, no tolerance for hate and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, later that night, later that night, you know, we, we were pulling people's digital record, right. The information they produce online. And we start to see some of the most hateful, volatile content coming out of his Twitter feed that I've seen in researching this for a decade. And, you know, at first I was like, wait, 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 we must've made a mistake. This can't be the same guy. You know, he was so nice. He was so calm. He's so polite. And then we validated, you know, the, the Twitter account three, four, five, six different ways and discovered this is the guy every night he's logging in from like 10 to 12 at night. And he's just Photoshopping images of Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and all sorts of other liberal leaders in sort of most vile unspeakable ways. And so you sort of wonder, like, how does someone like this, you know, turn from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde, you know, every night? And, uh, you know, you start to look at the rest of the guy's life. And um, what we learned as we did that, it's he's he's really a a lonely, isolated person. He's a Republican guy. He lives in a liberal city. He works in a liberal profession. And, you know, social media for him is sort of a refuge for his ideas. You know, he was, you know, a single middle-aged man living with his mother and social on social media, he was sort of a hero, or at least he felt like a hero um, to, you know, a increasingly radical conservative cause. So, you know, it's that type of person where the incentives for social media are all wrong, right? We've created a system that rewards people taking increasingly um, extreme positions. And those people are getting something out of it. It's not what we'd like them to get out of it. They're getting a sense of purpose and, and, and um, belonging in the world. And, you know, for my money, we want, that's not at all what we want to do, right? We want to, we want to lift up the sort of more moderate majority who, who we know are the majority of social media users who right now have no incentive to talk about politics. Uh, you've noted that moderates tend to be more victimized, more harassed online than uh, even the extremists. Why is that? You know, I think there's 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 another story that's really instructive here from our research, and that's the story of a young Republican woman named who, who we named Sarah in the book to protect her identity. And you know, she's a she's an extremely moderate conservative. I mean, you know, grew up in New York City. Uh, she's half Jewish, half um, Latina. Uh, her father was a cop, so she sort of like leans conservative, especially around issues of gun control. And, you know, as he sort of got to know her, you know, she's like, what do you do on social media? You know, recently she's like, well, I haven't been on social media recently. And we said, why? And she said, well, about a month ago, I, you know, was, I was reading Twitter late at night and the National Rifle Association, Rifle Association puts out a tweet that says something like some, something pretty innocuous in the landscape of America's crazy gun debate, you know it's every American's right to own a gun. And she notices that, you know, a lot of liberals are piling on, you know, um, you know, criticizing the, 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 um, the tweet in a lot of uncivil ways. And, you know, she's thinking of her dad or who's a cop or her, her husband who owns a, a handgun, has a license and goes to a shooting range. And she just sort of says, you know, hey, you know, you might not like it, but this is people's right, you know? Um, and she says that within seconds, uh, some of these more extreme liberal commentators had visited her profile on Twitter, seen that she had kids, and then posted, you know, we hope your kids find your gun and shoot you. 
And, you know, unfortunately, I would love to say this is just one story that we heard once. And this is the type of story that we hear from many, many moderate people, you know, like Sarah, who, by the way, have very nuanced views about gun control and race that I think could really move the conversation in the right direction. And so the real trouble, you know, is that we've created, again, this situation where these moderate folks, it's all risk and no reward. You know, it's not just you know, your kids getting threatened, which is, you know, terrifying, but it's also your job and your neighbors and, you know, your, your boss at work, or, you know, there's, there's really no incentive for someone like Sarah, who's happily married, has like two great kids, you know, she doesn't crave, she doesn't suffer from that social isolation that propels her into a life of radicalism, like the guy Ray that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. For her, it's, it's all risk, no reward. One of the other effects of this is that, um, the perception gap between what you think of the other side and what the other side actually thinks grows because only ex extremists are online and the moderates are keeping mum. One of the things about the perception gap that struck me from your research is that while it's a kind of alarming problem that we so overestimate the divides among us, but also it's a there within that there is um, reason for hope because the reality is very different from the perception. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, this is something that we've actually known even before social media came along. You know, even back in the 1990s, um, you know, sociologists and social psychologists at places like Princeton and Harvard were running studies where they would ask Republicans and Democrats, they would say, you know, what do you think the other side thinks of an issue like abortion or gun control? Mm -hmm. And sort of invariably what they found is people on one side thought the other side was much, much more extreme than they really were. I mean, substantially, not just a little bit, a lot more. And then they tended to underestimate how extreme their own side was. And so in the aggregate, when you think about those two sort of twin processes going on, what you get is everybody feels much more polarized. Then you have things like cable news, mass media in the 90s, you know, early aughts, like, you know, you see this gets worse, right? There's a suddenly a market where people are sort of incentivized to offend people, you know, um, they're, you know, they're not on, you know, like places like PBS, where I know you, you, you've spent a lot of time, right, where, you know, you've got a sort of center, you know, um, really civil conversation going on, you know, they're on the, the, the nightly shows where they're, they're yelling at each other, right? So it's already bad before social media comes along. And then you start to get to the situation where we are elevating any anyone with a crazy thing to say, right? And and not only elevating them, but propelling them across, you know, the the, the social media stratosphere, right? And then the, per, the risk of confusion, confusing the extremists with the moderates on the other side only grows, you know, to the point where I think people on both sides think, okay, well, I don't know a reasonable Republican. Like if you're tell, tell, how do I find a moderate Republican if you're a Democrat? Uh, I don't know. Or on the other side, like where are all these moderate liberals, right? They're all defunding the police and this, that, and the other, you know, things that we know taking the most extreme version and generalizing to the group. You know, that's again, that's a human, human bias, um, but it is made so much worse by social media. That I think is a pretty good description of what I understand you mean by the title of your book, The Social Media Prism, uh, that it refracts reality into this polarized world. You mentioned that there are three strategies, though, for breaking the prism and reducing its power. 
Um, you know, let's talk about those. The first one is sure. to learn just to see the prism, to perceive it and understand how it distorts people's identities online. That's right. That's right. And, you know, if you are if you are a politically interested person, you know, it's likely that you're, you know, following politics on online. And and even for those people, you know, who might be sort of, you know, carefully searching out a range of views, you know, social media just, again, amplifies these, these extreme voices to the point where, you know, a lot of us just just really miss um, miss the middle. So learning to see how social media distorts reality, it sounds obvious. I mean, I think we all know it, you know, we teach our kids, you know, that, you know, what happens on social media isn't in real life, but we quickly forget that lesson. It's so easy. You know, when we're in the environment where, you know, a majority of Republicans and Democrats, according to research from the Harvard political scientist, Ryan Enos now shows, are never, almost never going to meet each other in real life because of the way that we've sorted into different parts mm-hmm. of the country, different zip codes. Mm-hmm. So social media is going to be where we interact. And, and you know, our, our brains, again, to the extent that, you know, we're social creatures, we're trying to figure out what other people think of us, or it's sort of hardwired for us to, to develop this social sense. It's what distinguishes us from other animals. And, you know, so when you put that together with now social media is sort of our, one of our only ways of monitoring what other people are thinking, it makes sense that we just continue to forget this lesson. So it's not easy to, to, continue, to continue to be aware of the distortion, especially when you have no other source to sort of challenge it, which, which I think increasingly a lot of people experience, but it's vital. You know, it's, it's really about pulling back social media from the extremes and elevating the moderate. So yeah, you know, the first thing is learning to see it and there's different ways to do this. You know, I believe what we need is, you know, a more kind of reflective social media user instead of just launching on and diving into the warfare, you know, which is all too easy to do you know, just start asking yourself questions like, why, why am I logging on? You know, why am I liking this? Why am I sharing this? You know, do, is this other person really credible? Or are they worth arguing with? Am I only, you know, in, uh, inflating what they're saying by, by you know, uh, arguing with them? You know, a study that I love was recently done before Twitter, uh, you know, started its current, whatever it's doing, decline, whatever you want to call it. Um, data scientists at Twitter had had looked at whether it's algorithm and what the algorithm is it's sort of a complicated thing but 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 whether the the way that its newsfeed boosted certain content and not others tended to privilege conservatives or liberals in a lot of different countries not just the united states and a lot of people think that social media is censoring and silencing the right you at least you hear that from the right a lot and what the twitter data scientists found in a study that appeared in one of the most prestigious outlets in the world they found that exactly the opposite was true. Their algorithm, their newsfeed algorithm tended to promote conservative voices, not just in the US, but in four or five different other countries. And so the question becomes like, well, why would that be? And the answer I think is that the algorithms, as you know, so many of us know, or many of the algorithms, or there's really no single algorithm, but the way that you know, the, the models are working is to, to look for engagement. The stuff that's getting engagement is getting boosted. What is engagement? Engagement is not just likes or retweets. It's also angry comments. So every time that we give some radical on either side, you know, an earful, we are voting with our thumbs. We're saying, I want this to appear earlier in someone else's newsfeed, right? Which is probably exactly the opposite of what most people who are trying to censor 
um, that type of stuff are doing. So we need to become more mindful social media users. That's sort of job number one, and it's it's not easy. One of the experiments that you uh, pursued at the Polarization Lab was a, a a false social media platform called Discuss It, which tried to encourage more mindful use of social media action, and uh, the results were encouraging and surprising. Could you talk about the Discuss It experiment? You know, we have become concerned that you know our identities are guiding our interactions, right? So if 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 social media is really this sort of feedback loop that just sort of feeds our status, then what we need to do is sort of try to disrupt that feedback loop and try to find ways to encourage people to focus on each other's ideas instead of each other's identities. Because as soon as, you know, we know from decades of research, as soon as identities get cued, uh, you know, people drop into the sort of tribal, you know, warfare we've all unfortunately mm -hmm. experienced too often on social media. So how would you do that? I mean, there's, you know, you could, well, can you, can you change identities? Actually, identities are pretty resistant to being changed. And if you try to tell someone, you know, you're too extreme or you're too moderate, right? They don't like that. And if anything, they, they tend to sort of resist. Um, you know, you might think, well, maybe if there's some sort of external enemy, like, uh, you know, if Russia or Iran gets, you know, really, or, or let's say COVID, right? Uh, a, a queer external enemy that threatens us all, maybe that'll bring us together. And, you know, sadly, it, it doesn't look like that did the trick either. So what can you do? You're, there's not a lot of great options. One option is to, to not allow people to share their identities, to, to encourage anonymous deliberation. And I got to be honest, when we started kicking around this idea, I was like, you know, hey, guys, this could go wrong, right? I mean, it, we've all suffered harassment, or probably most of us have suffered some kind of, well, at least survey data indicate most Americans have suffered harassment online. And a lot of it comes from anonymous people, you know, people who say things online that they would never say in person. So there's a clear dark side to anonymity, but often less appreciated, I think, is the, the potential positives. So, you know, an anonymous conversation can allow us to sort of encounter the idea before the person, right, can, can sort of allow us to sort of voice opinions that may be unpopular on, on my side. So, for example, you know, if I'm a Democrat at the height of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm sort of concerned about this narrative about defund the police, you know, probably the last thing I'm going to do is take to Twitter and start saying, you know, hey, guys, you know, this, I don't, you know, I don't know about this idea, right? Because, you, you know, you, you'll get, you'll get um, beat up, right? But in an anonymous format, right, we can share those unpopular views, explore them, go deeper. And there's some naturally occurring examples of this. For example, the subreddit Change My View, where people have anonymously you know, engaged in surprisingly profitable discussion in terms of influencing each other and reducing mm -hmm. polarization. And so we wanted to test this idea. We created this, you know, this platform with this anodyne name, Discuss It because we didn't want to cue the people we were paying to, to participate in our study that they were going to be talking to someone from the other side. We didn't want to only attract the small group of people who want that kind of cross-party engagement. And we told them, okay, you're going to have a conversation with someone about either immigration or gun control. We didn't tell them who they're going to talk to. And you know, then we let the conversations go. We didn't do much other than that. We, we didn't say, you know, it has to be civil or it has to be this, that, or the other. We just uh -huh. let people meet each other. And overall, you know, the, the intervention depolarized people. People were less likely to dislike the other side, and they were more likely to agree with the other side's opinions. 
And, you know, it's sort of an abstract finding, but let me give you an example that I think helps explain how this works or how we think this works. You know, we have an African-American woman from a coastal city talking to, who's, who's a Democrat, talking to a Republican man who owns many, many guns and lives in a rural area. Now, you imagine this, this conversation happening in person, like imagine a video of these two people meeting, right? And now you're going to say, okay, talk about gun control, you know? <laughs> That conversation is going to begin in a, you know, in a, in a way that we all, you know, it's, it's, it's immediately the two people will impute each other's opinions and immediately, you know, especially if it were on social media, you know, it's, it's not going to be very productive. Now, let me tell you what happened when these two people met on Discuss It. You know, the first thing the woman said is, you know, I'm worried about uh, guns because my son's a police officer and you know he's you know he's he's encountering guns every day immediately the, there's this rural guy says yeah i have i have family who are police officers as well i share your concern but they, they start out on the they found common ground right from the get-go instead of you know doing what what you might expect two people who come from so such different backgrounds to do which is just immediately you know retreat into their sort of tribal political positions as just one example, but there were many. And what was surprising to us is even though we didn't, you know, incentivize people to say that they like this or, or anything like that, we found about 90% of people said they liked the experience of talking to someone anonymously from the other side, you know, saying things like, you know, I didn't know they thought like this, or we had more common ground than I thought, thought we did. I don't want to get too Pollyannish about it. We still have deep divisions. There are clear, you know, disagreements, but what gives me hope is is seeing these type of examples where real people are connecting outside of the you know very tarnished and 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 um, dangerous playing field of social media as we know it, and and having productive conversations. Discuss it. It was a a very very interesting experiment, and I encourage the listeners to to read Chris's book and and learn about it. It was, however, a, an experiment. And discuss it was not meant to be a commercial website. For the rest of us, uh, you know, living in a world in which we still communicate on the extant social media platforms, how do we have those conversations, or how do we have those conversations across the Thanksgiving dinner table? Um, what are the uh, precepts that you've learned in your research that can sort of guide us in the world as we find it? Yeah, well, first of all, our Thanksgiving dinner conversations are getting shorter. You know, this is a dangerous, a, a sad headline, but it's true. You know, uh, some some economists did an interesting study where they used phone tracking data, you know, which we all provide, um, you know, whether we know it or not. And they looked at whether Thanksgiving dinners are shorter in areas where people are coming from Republican zip codes to Democratic zip codes or vice versa. And what they found is those who are going to these mixed areas are actually having shorter Thanksgiving dinners. Uh, really depressing, right? So it's, and, and it's depressing. It's bad, right? And it's depressing because Thanksgiving is the one one place where you know we're you know we're we're sort of we're hoping those are the sort of maybe positive cross party contact. So yeah, we we need to fix social media because there's no other option. In my heart of hearts, if I could press a button and turn off all social media tomorrow, and we'd all go back to you know, to, to the way it was, I would strongly consider that. But, but nobody has that type of button. And if you look to our younger generations, there is no future that I can envision where people aren't massively online. You know, 
80 to 90% of teenagers are saying they're online most of the day, you know? And I think social media will change. It has to change what we have right now. It's just not working for anyone. But, you know, how can we make, how can we make the current system better? I wouldn't say, based on the results of our disgusted experience, that we should tomorrow make all social media platforms anonymous. That'd be a disaster, I think. <laughs> but there are some insights. One, we could make many different types of social media, and that's one of my biggest predictions for what will happen if we take the long view for a minute. You know, if you have younger listeners, they've maybe never heard of Friendster, MySpace, right? The the graveyard of of, of social media is, is well well populated. You know, Facebook. Just last week, it was announced as the worst performing stock in the S&P 500. You know, if you told me that was going to happen two years ago when I started writing this book, I would say no way, right? So there's a real opportunity structure. I don't think anybody can snap their fingers. You know, I think a lot of people like to think, well, Mark Zuckerberg has some sort of sort of magical dial where he could turn up or down the hatred and, and vitriol on, on Facebook. Again, I don't think that exists. But what gives me hope is that, you know, we're, we're early in the story of social media. And if we look at other major technological upheavals, you know, printing press, radio, television, it takes us a while to figure this out. You know, it's not a, it, it, you know, it's such a fundamental realignment of human communication that it'll take a while before we can figure out what works. And I think, you know, okay, I'm a researcher, so of course I'm going to say that, you know, we need we need research. But I do believe that. I think we've been sort of stuck in a broken system, and we're currently having an argument about how to you know, tweak a broken system rather than saying, what would a, what would an entirely new system look like? You know, maybe we're not supposed to connect with so many people. Maybe the fact that we can wander into conversations at great social distances is, is not always a good thing. Um, you know, maybe we need to give users more choice over their social media environment so they can avoid some of the vitriol if they so choose, right? And these are some nice ideas that, but we just don't know. We've never done the research. And so we're doing research on both these questions right now in the lab. But, you know, more concretely, I think I took your question to me, you know, what can we do right now? And I think there's one beautiful example, which may even survive Elon Musk at Twitter. And that is Twitter's uh, birdwatch program. It's now called Community Notes. And you're in, you know, you do a lot of stuff on disinformation. So you may have already heard about this. This is a crowdsourced misinformation detection system. And the way it works, is you got a group of people um, and anytime someone says something on Twitter, they can make a note and sort of challenge it or flag it as either false or misleading. And, hmm. you know, so right now, um, you know, this is being recorded in, in, in mid-November. A lot of people are doing this to Elon Musk himself. You know, he's saying, saying all this stuff about how Twitter works or, you know, making statements about the world below his tweets. You're saying, oh no, you know, he's wrong. This is actually the, the way things are, right? So it's a noble, it's sort of an interesting idea because it, at root, it sort of tests this idea about the marketplace of ideas. You know, earlier you were saying that, you know, uh, the, the truth will sort of rise above. And the obvious problem, if you try to crowdsource this thing, right, is that it'll become a political football that people will say, uh, you know, well, I think all the Democrats are fake news and the, and the Democrats will say all the Republicans are fake news, right? Super predictable. And actually, in an early beta launch of this program, now called Community Notes, formerly called Birdwatch, that's what happened. Um, we, we saw, you know, the sort of political infighting. But at the end of my book, I sort of proposed if I could have one big, if I could do one thing tomorrow to every social media platform, it would be to instead of boosting the content, 
that gets the most engagement, which almost guarantees that you're going to boost the most outrageous stuff because it just the stuff that generates argument is the stuff that's going to get the most engagement. What if we boosted the stuff that builds consensus? So instead of promoting stuff that you know Republicans and Democrats are arguing about a lot about, why not boost the stuff that they both like or they both share? And we built some prototypes about this. Your listeners can can visit polarizationlab.com to try out all our free tools. But one of them is a bipartisanship leaderboard. We actually track which among the sort of high profile public officials are getting traction on both sides. And then we built bots that, for example, retweet these bipartisan communicators. But you could go even further than that. And Twitter, um, before Elon Musk, they did. They actually implemented this technique, which I'd call bridging-based uh, newsfeed algorithm. What they did in a series of experiments, they showed that if you boost these notes, these annotations that people are making about disinformation, and you say, oh, we're going to promote this note instead of that note, right? And you focus on the ones that Republicans and Democrats are both agreeing on. So they're both saying Elon Musk is wrong about X, right? Then boosting that content not only improves intergroup attitudes, it also decreases the rate of misinformation sharing by 25 to 30%. So that is a huge effect that could substantially cut into a lot of disinformation. And it's one that's a relatively simple and elegant tweak, right? We have to think to the guts of social media. What's the goal of social media? Is it to gain status and lots of followers or is it to produce consensus? Consensus isn't always thought of as, you know, sexy and profitable, but that doesn't need to be the case. Consensus can be, you know, everybody thought Cat Lawyer was funny, you know, or everybody thought Gangnam Style was funny, or, every, you know, or, or you know, nobody likes the New York Yankees. Sorry if you're Yankees fans, right? Uh, you know, but this is the stuff, you know, that the apolitical stuff that, that you know, might be the, the glue that brings us back together. And the problem is right now, moderates are invisible, and that's by design. Right. That's that's a choice that every social media company is making. So current social media companies can Im implement bridging based ranking and, and new companies could build a whole business around it. Right. You think about all the people who might like to see the stuff that everybody agrees on, or you might want to incentivize a new class of people who can actually talk across partisan divides. Those people, in my opinion, could be very valuable to folks in a lot of different industries. That is a great optimistic place to leave this podcast, Chris. I thank you. But the idea that algorithms are not by their nature immoral or divisive, that they can be tweaked to promote consensus, that charts a pretty, shines a light on a path out of the woods here for us. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for doing what you do and, and shining a light on all this stuff, you know. It's so vitally important, and um, I hope your listeners will have a chance to check out, again, the free tools on polarizationlab.com um, or my book, Breaking the Social Media Prism. And, and thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to In Reality, the podcast about truth, disinformation, and the media. I'm Eric Schoenberg. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating, if possible, a review as well. And feel free to email me at eric at ericschoenberg.com. I'd love your feedback and ideas about who we should talk to next. One more note. This podcast was made possible by the terrific production team at Podcast Partners. Special thanks to Allison Burnaby, Jay Pearson, and Paul Blanchard. If you like how it sounded, learn more at podcastpartners.com. <laughs>